Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. We're all improvisers, whether we know it or not. That's the claim my guest Mary Ann McKibben Dana makes in her newest book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. It's a book that blends personal stories, pop culture, and scripture into a smart, funny, down-to-earth guide to the art of living. Offering concrete spiritual wisdom through seven improv principles, she helps readers become more awake, creative, resilient, and ready to play, especially when life doesn't go according to plan. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Marianne McKibben Dana. Marianne, welcome to the podcast. Be here with you. So you've written this fascinating book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. So I'm curious, is it more interesting, as, as somebody who's a minister, done pastoral work, is it more interesting, or, or, or are there stranger reactions from people in the church world to find out you're an improv person, or are the reactions more curious when you go to the improv class and people find out you're a minister? They feel guilty about the kind of jokes they've told you, or they're kind. Of, I mean, it's an interesting cross section of worlds because my guess is you're you're one of the onlys in each. Probably, that's, I would guess very often is that's yes. the case, right? That that's a great question, and not one I've been asked. They definitely have their own strange dynamics in both directions, and the. The moment in an improv class or a group when you tell them you're a pastor is not unlike telling people at a party, their gatherings in which we find ourselves. There is that kind of mental audit that they do of, oh my gosh, what did I say? What words did I use? Eh, I try to be as disarming as I can in terms of saying, we're all here to be real with one another and to explore this fun and irreverent art form. And that whatever has come out of that is perfectly fine. And, and interestingly, I think that it might be that people kind of come on board with that more easily from the improv community than from the church community, simply because most of us who study and play in improv really recognize the deep kind of spiritual lessons of it, that it really is an approach to life. It's not just this kind of fun thing we do. Um, there are all kinds of, of life lessons and things that we learn about ourselves. And so there is this kind of spiritual aspect to it. Um, on the church end of things, you do, uh, I think that the, the circles that I run in are, a lot of them consist of people who um, kind of like the plan. They like structure and order. And so the idea of improv makes them very nervous. But when I work with groups and, and speak to church retreats and other settings, it doesn't take long before people kind of realize that it's fun to play together. And when you really give people permission to be silly and to throw themselves into this um, world, then they really learn a lot about themselves and can let themselves go and, and have a really good time. So I, I do consider myself a bit of an ambassador on both ends of that spectrum. 
Do you think that people's discomfort with something like improv is because we, I mean, life, you, you make the point in your book that life is one big improvisational exercise, but, but sort of uncertain. I mean, the human brain, right, is not wired for cognitive dissonance. And so we do whatever we can to dispel it. And so our control mechanisms and things and routines, were, they, these are things that I guess comfort our anxiety levels, right? And then sort of convince us that life is maybe less improvisational than it really is, or at least you try to live with that illusion. So it's one of those things where you're actually, you, you kind of make the point in the book that, that life, it's much more of an improvisational ex- exercise than we think. And sometimes that scares people. Right, right. I think we like to cling to control any way we can. And sometimes that control comes through our own stories we tell ourselves, you know, that that sort of uh, denial impulse of I'm in charge here. I know what's going to happen. I am I am in control. And improv confronts us with the truth that uh, we are we are not in control of our lives. And and so that does make people nervous. Uh, I think also there's um, sometimes there's a reluctance that people have uh, just to do something imperfectly. And the very nature of improv, and I think especially when you're just starting out, is that you have to be willing to not do it very well for a very long time. <laughs> um, it's like the 10,000 hours thing, right? I mean, it's exactly it, it, right. You just yeah. basically, you put your time in. I mean, you, exactly. you, you have to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and even people who are experienced improvisers, I think approach it with that beginner's mind. I mean, they, they come into it and if they have a sense of how it's going to go or, or even that it's going to go well because they've done it a long time and they sort of know what they're doing, that's a recipe for disaster because you need to be willing to be surprised and not come in with an agenda and a, and an idea in your mind of what will happen. That's the whole nature of improv. And so um, it's especially true for uh, new people who are who are just brand new at it, but it's also true for people who've put in their ten thousand hours. Hey, hey, it's interesting. I've heard it said that that actors want to be somebody else and comics want to be themselves. Mm. Uh, I wonder is is how, what you mentioned in the book that you're by nature an introvert. I mean, is some of improv for you the draw to to get out of yourself i mean to kind of to to, to sort of be a more open person to the world around you because normally your 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 normal default mode is sort of more internal right yes i think it does give you that permission to to step out of your normal mode of being and i tell a story and experience where i was in an improv class of about 10 to 12 people and we were going to have a a showcase at the end of our, our class in front of other groups and friends and neighbors and just whoever we invited. And by the time that rolled around, only four of us were going to be on, be able to attend. And when you're in a situation like that, you're pretty much always on. You're, you're, if, you, if you're not in a scene, you are going to be in the next one just because there are so few people. You're in the mix a lot of the time. And that is a, a tremendously it can be a it was a stressful kind of evening moving into it but then once it started you get into this kind of sense of exhilarating uh unpredictability i mean just no idea what's going to happen but you're fully immersed in it and it is a very energizing thing and so so yes getting people out of that comfort zone uh, i think probably about and what's so wonderful about 
about practicing it and learning it. It's interesting. You say in the book that one of your opening chapters is learning to say yes. It's really interesting that you invite the reader to just think about the body language of when you say no versus when you say yes to something. And and you talk about your own natural sort of attunement is not to be this kind of yes person that you're, but that so much of life, right? You know, the added so much is showing up, right? So you, you kind of argue that so much of life is learning to say yes right. to things when it, you know, which oftentimes, you know, it's interesting, right? We can say yes to anything, but not to everything. And so, mm-hmm. it, right. This is the fine art, right. Of, of learning like right. which to say. And, and a lot of times I think out of, fear of like, well, we can't say yes to everything. People don't say yes to anything, right? And so you're trying to get people, look, you don't have to say yes to everything, but you can say yes to anything and learning to see the world in terms of potential yeses. That's right. That's right. And one of the things I make really clear when I speak to groups, or I, I say this in the book too, is that, I mean, improv is not, it does not come naturally to me. Uh, I don't I don't study and write about things that I already know how to do well. I am drawn to those things that that push me. And my first book that I wrote was about Sabbath keeping and and finding rest in the renewal in the midst of busy lives because I love to work and be on all the time. And so improv is the same. I, I love my plans. I like my backup plans to have backup plans. Um, but the more I live in the world, the more I see that life just doesn't go according to plan. And so I have been so captivated by this. And, and a lot of people who to take improv classes or to play in that uh, medium are taken by this rule of improv, the cardinal rule, which is to say yes and. So we receive what is offered, that's the yes, and then we build on it in our own unique way, which is the and. And in the book, I, I address those separately. I talk about what it means to say yes And then I talk about what it means to say and because I think so many of us are wired for no that we need to kind of unlearn that before we can really think about the building. But um, but yeah, I um, I've always loved the serenity prayer, as it's called, this idea of, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change and the courage to change the things I can. And to me, that is the improviser's prayer, because there are things that happen in life that we would never have chosen. Um, we can't change them. And so our best response, if we can't change it, is to say, is to find the yes and in it. And How the, can we, you know, receive it and build on it? And the, the end of that prayer is the wisdom to know the difference, right? Right. And do, it, it often seems like the older you get, the wiser you get, you realize, right, the, the things, I, I think for most people, the things in column A increase, right? Like ah, you, yes. you, you learn more and more. Most of the stuff is stuff we can't change. Right. You know, like, like they're, they're very, they're very few things. Whereas when you're younger, the world seems much more pliable, uh, or, or at least if you're idealistic or, you know, you think more things in your control and you gradually learn there's very little in your control. Right. Yes. I, I, I've just finished recording a series of interviews with people about improv and life and how those things intersect. And I was talking with one person about as you age, uh, and we were trying to come up with better language than settling. You know, because it's not that you sort of settle for life as it is, but there's just an acceptance that that this is the world as it is. I'm going to bring my best effort to it to bring about uh, compassion and wholeness and all of those things to the extent that they're in my power to do that. Um, But ultimately, uh, there's a peace and a, a wisdom, I think, that comes from just saying, here is my small sliver 
of a contribution I can make to this world. And that's good. That is okay. Um, and to bring my best to that little sliver, whatever it might be. Yeah. And, and you know, the ancient biblical fall story, right. In, in the early chapters of Genesis, it's, I mean, here is a couple that have not learned to love their limits, right? Mm, their, mm-hmm. their own limits seem like shackles as opposed to realizing, Hey, you know, the beauty of my limits, right. Or I get to know where I end and the world begins. And, and that, yeah. and that's part of the, the nature you need that right to enjoy the world, right? Otherwise, right. you're always confusing yourself yes. with, with the world around. And so, like, there's it less. Is it less settling? More like, hey, I'm seeing the beauty of my own finiteness here. Like, yes. I, I don't right. have to be everything. I can be this. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In the book, I quote a friend of mine, Ashley Gaw. He says, "Structure creates safety." And that's true in improv as well. We look at an improv scene and we sometimes think it's this free for all where everybody's just saying whatever's on their mind and it can go in any direction. And certainly improv scenes can be very creative and things come from out of left field that you never could have predicted. But there also is an underlying logic to it. And, And when you play improv games or even do improv scenes, there is a there's a dynamic of understanding how we all relate to one another. When is it time for the scene to end? You know, those things really help create the safety in which we can play. And yeah, so thinking about that Genesis story, um, they were pushing against those limits in a way that ultimately um, created a new set of limits that brought a bunch of baggage with it. They fly outside the garden. So, so yeah, I think those structures can be important and can be a gift, frankly. You tell this really interesting story in the book uh, where this you're in this scene with this guy who's sort of like a bro, right? Mm-hmm. And you, um, your initial line in the improv is, we need to do something about mom. And he says, yeah, she's been sick lately. And you shot back. She keeps thinking the cat is a unicorn. And your teacher said, Marianne, that was a no you just gave Derek. He gave you an offering She's really sick and sick and stiff building on it. You went in a totally different direction. You kind of talk about um, relationality in the book and the importance of really listening and not just trying to get to the next thing. I mean, it was, it was very interesting that the, the teacher picked up on something, which was it like you were kind of trying, you weren't letting the scene play out. Like you kind of like, well, this is the direction we're going. And you, right. you weren't, there, was, there wasn't going to give and take back and forth. You were kind of steering the yeah. thing in a direction that seemed really forced. Right. One of the the first things that I learned in improv is that the goal is not to be funny. In fact, if your goal is to be funny, you will not be funny. Um, What is funny for people is is honesty, is authenticity. And that is the true goal for um, for people who've been improvising for a while. You hear this from them a lot. The funniness comes. But if that is what you're going after, it's going to backfire on you. And so I had this sort of zany idea, you know, that, that mom's just off her rocker, you know, and he gave me this line that I was like, well, that's not, that's not good. She's sick. What are we going to do with that? And that was a no, that was a, you know, um, there are ways I could have yes ended that and still taken it in maybe the direction I was thinking about, but I totally shut him down. So it was a huge lesson for me. And as I think I said in the book, you know, uh, our teacher didn't awesome, didn't often uh, shut down a scene, but he did there and he was like, nope, that was a no. And so start again. 
Um, and part of that comes from trusting yourself, comes from trusting the process. But really, it's about listening. And I'm not even sure I really had fully internalized what he said because I was thinking about what I wanted to say. And so much of our communication anymore is oriented that way. We want to, we're listening to respond rather than listening to understand. And that's a way that improv, I think, can really help us and give us tools because improv doesn't work unless we're listening to one another. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure as a pastor, you've seen this, right? A lot of times, doesn't it seem like when somebody is in pain or in a complex situation, oftentimes people want to fix it, not out of some compassion, but because the problem in front of them makes them anxious Absolutely. And, they, and they want the anxiety to go away. So rather than sit through, it's like, it's like stepping over a scene in an improv, right? You kind of just, not, you want to control it because look, I can't handle the ambiguity and complexity and the pain in front of me. So I've got to fix it. Not so much for them because the best thing for them might be to do nothing, you know, right. and, and to just be there. Uh, Cause yes. you know, the most tragic pain is, you know, there aren't easy answers to these things. Right. right. And so this exactly. is, this is, but people, I'm sure you see all the time, right. People short circuit the presence right. process. Right. Well, and yeah, I mean, you think about the biblical story of Job who, I mean, Job lost everything and he had these friends who, you know, we, we remember in the first part of that story, they got it right for a while, right? For seven days, they sit in silence with him. They don't try to explain. They don't try to justify. They don't, but if only, you know, or, or give their explanations. And then they just can't take it anymore. The silence, I don't know what's going on there. The silence is just too much for them. They've sort of checked that off the list and it's time to make sense of it. Uh, I don't know, but, um, but yeah, that is, um, we want to keep we want to keep pain, especially inexplicable pain, at arm's length, and so we will find explanations. Even the even the things we say in an attempt to be comforting um, can can fall into that same trap of well, you know, we'll all understand the plan someday, or everything happens for a reason, and that kind of stuff, and that is rarely helpful. And it really does, as you say, come out of that desire to to immunize ourselves from that kind of pain. Has improv shaped you as a preacher, as someone who has to get up and deliver, you know, discourses in front of groups of people? Has that has it changed how you approach that task? Mm. I still when I when I preach, I still use um a manuscript with notes and, and places where I kind of go off script a little bit. I'm such a believer in the written word that I, I, for me, that discernment and that ruminating on a text and then preparing to preach is, is really key for me. But when I'm speaking to groups and when I'm presenting, um, I am much more able to trust it's not that I don't come in prepared, but I've started to realize over the years that my experience is in itself preparation. So, um, I mean, I do my research, I do my homework, but in that moment, I've learned to trust more that interaction and that connection the gathered community um, to trust that the spirit will provide what is needed based on or flowing out of my preparation and also what the community is bringing and what they might need in that moment. So that comes with maturity and just being at it for a while, but I also think that improv has been part of that process. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. 
like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah, I wonder, too, how much for the challenge of contemporary preaching is that every place in society, when someone's reading to them, they don't look like they're reading, right? Mm -hmm. So they're teleprompters and things. So, like, even people that are reading off a script are trained to read well, and they don't look like they're reading. And so if someone has a manuscript and they're reading to you, it automatically seems less authentic, right? Whereas, you know, in the 18th century, you know, people are, Jonathan Edwards is reading these, I mean, his sermons are so dense, the structure is so strange, but and people are getting slain in the spirit, and they're having, but like, they didn't have this kind of, and I'm sure he read things well and stuff, but I mean, people didn't have this bias against someone with a prepared text in front of them. Like they do now, right? Where mm-hmm. if someone if someone is reading from a prepared text, they look like they're not a gifted orator. You know, right. we, we we prize these people that can get up, and again, even people that ne- aren't necessarily gifted like that, they look gifted like that because of technology, right? So, I mean, is that a challenge today? For they, how much of the, uh, the the sort of authenticity, like the kind of interpersonal connection, has to happen now because of media? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, and one I, I haven't I hadn't really thought about as it relates to uh, to improv and this stuff, except that I. I mean, you think about our our political discourse and and you do have this sense. I think what people find suspicious and less resonant is when something feels too heavily processed and sort of uh, focus grouped, you know, and and you use the word authenticity. I think that is something people really there's so much we're being marketed to all the time. And so I think we're searching for for genuine connection and something that feels real. And that can come with a well-crafted speech that's delivered from the heart and really has been um, thought through in a, in a kind of thoughtful, genuine way. And that can come off the cuff. And I think the same, the opposite is true. You know, you can, you can um, have sort of some rough talking points that feel very manufactured and you can do the same with, with something that's very carefully crafted. 
but crafted in a way to be manipulative. So the pitfalls are probably there either way. But what people are really, and I think we're, we're getting better, perhaps, and more savvy at, at sussing out what is authentic and what is fake and kind of artifice. I hope. Yeah, I think ministers have a tough challenge, right? Because, yeah, I think of like the things about, I've seen articles about like how to make sermons for clergy, you know, to model things more like TED Talks. And like you're thinking, well, this person is giving this TED Talk, you know, it's a pretty unique opportunity. They're giving, and they're giving their best stuff once. They're they're not having to come up with something kind of on different top topics weekly. And there, there's so much, I feel like clergy are, are, are put under a lot of pressure from lots of expectations. You know, like you have to be a manager, a social worker, a counselor, this, that. And then, you know, we often expect clergy to be like sort of world-class communicators, right? When, when it, it uh, uh, on one of the eight other million things we, we want them to be, yes, right? Right. Yeah. 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 I, I, I talk in the book about one of the things that's wonderful about improv is it's sort of, it's there and then it's gone and, and you don't have this lasting artifact. So it, it keeps you focused in the moment. And I think that can be a really useful tool um, or, or practice for preachers who, yes, as you say, they don't have their one Ted talk. They have to do this every week and sometimes multiple times a week. And so how do you, uh, you know, I, um, I quote Ira Glass from this American life in the book who, you know, is talking about, um, how important it is to just get out there and, and do a lot of work. And, and preachers just inevitably have to do that. If they preach weekly, they're just always doing it. And the hard thing about that is any one of their sermons may not measure up to a TED Talk. But over time, you just, as you said, with the 10,000 hours, you you increase your own competence and your own uh, kind of facility at, at communicating in that way. And so in that sense, it is very improvisational because you're just working at it and you're churning at it and Sunday's over and maybe that sermon was a flop, but there's another sermon coming in seven days, you know, shake the dust off and, and move on to the next, the next task. I, I've heard Tim Keller, pastor of New York City, say that, that when you graduate from seminary, you'll probably write some of your best sermons, but do some of your worst preaching. And that, like, he's like, the sermon is different. The preaching the sermon is different than the preaching. And, and there's a yeah. sort of wisdom that comes, but you've got all of these book knowledge and you've just been, you know, the commentaries and this and that, and your seminary is fresh in your mind. And, and oftentimes you, you, you craft these things that don't actually, the content's great, but you don't, you don't really know how to preach yet. Yes, that's right. And, and the longer that you spend at it, at least the longer I have spent at it, the more, I mean, I've had many times over the years when, when people have, when I've had to write a sermon, it's been a hard week, a lot of pastoral needs or just life stuff. And what I end up presenting on Sunday morning, I, I didn't spend nearly as much time on it as I've wanted to. And people have, those have been the ones that people come out of and say, wow, that really spoke to me. And I used to be really infuriated by that <laughs> and be like, this one I just threw together. What, what are you doing? You know, the ones I slaved over and sweated blood over, you know, don't. But I think it's, the, it's what you're saying about the Tim Keller, you know, kind of comment of, first of all, it's trusting that there's a relationship there between speaker and audience and, and congregation, but also the spirit who works through those words and, and being okay, not only okay with that, but that's the best way it happens. Um, we bring our best that we can, but 
we trust that something's going to happen between my mouth and your ear that neither of us is really in control over. You say in the in the book that you're a West Wing devotee, which endears you to me because I'm a devotee, and you tell the story where with where President Bartlett and his debate prep, uh, played by of course Martin Sheen, he he was all it kind of it, it got in his head that his favorite debate tie, his lucky tie, uh, was ruined at the cleaners, um, and, but it was a tie that he got from someone else because his tie that something happened to his tie or whatever. And so his wife right before the debate, when they're alone in the, in the room and a minute before cuts his tie and he grabs Josh Lyman, his, his deputy chief of staff's tie. And it's just, it creates this adrenaline that actually propels him on stage, like this last minute adrenaline. And you talk about like the, the, making peace with like, with never enough. So right with these, these Lynn, again, it's about finitude, right? That, that oftentimes, uh, we we can see like the challenges of never enough as sort of scarcity or opportunity. Like, okay, gosh, we've got this much. This is what I've been gifted, right? This amount of space and time to get to, to offer this thing I need to offer to the world, right? Like seeing the, the limits again as 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 an asset that 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 off, offers you the space to offer something as opposed to something that's always constricting and choking things out. Exactly. Yeah. I, I quote Leonard Barn, Bernstein in that section who says, to achieve great things, we need a plan and not quite enough time. Right. I mean, if we have all the time in the world, we can then we start to trick ourselves into believing that it's all about our plan and executing that plan perfectly. And and we can get in our heads that way. Um, but trusting that that the spirit can work through a little bit of scarcity. And, and I don't I don't want to be cavalier about about true scarcity that many people live with in their lives um, and be kind of dismissive of that. But I will also say that it's been interesting to reflect on this book with a lot of different kinds of people, uh, many of whom do uh, live or minister in poorer communities. And there is kind of a sense of, wow, there are people who need to be told how to improvise. <laughs> because for some people, that is just a way of life because there isn't enough. And so you figure out a way forward. And and so what what many of us who I think maybe come from more privileged contexts, we find that a struggle because we're very, we consider ourselves very capable and uh, we we make a plan for our lives and execute it. Um, and for people who do live within scarcity, yeah, it's all about improv, uh, right? And so, um, so recognizing that dynamic, I think, is has been helpful for me as well as I process all of this stuff. You know, there, I, I read a book uh, I, a couple a year and a half ago or so. It was the author was studying meaning and like how people make meaningful lives and one of the whole chapters was on storytelling that people that have meaningful lives were able to tell and re-narrate their own stories you have this great chapter called reframing loss and failure and you have this great thing you talk about the failure lab where people kind of go up and just talk about their failures in front of an audience but but this is so right improv has helped you i mean i, I suppose improv has helped with this for you because you're constantly having to reframe something spontaneously right and so so much of life is not this, it's the given circumstances, but what what we make of them, right? I mean, Charles Krauthammer just died, the famous conservative commentator, and he was saying that he just he sat there and looked at, at this. He was a paraplegic for diving accident. He thought, I'm going to have a miserable life or a happy one. I'm going to choose happy. And you know, he finished medical school from bed, and I bet like you know these things about reframing, right? Like 
don't not taking the meaning of of experience as a given right that but we can make meaning out of it exactly right and and that to me um that's our last human freedom right is the freedom to choose how we respond to the circumstances in which we find ourselves and um and and i don't I don't want to give the impression that that process is easy. And, and I do, you know, I, I talked earlier about these kind of messages we give people who are in grief or in trauma to say, you know, there's a meaning behind it. We'll understand someday, all of that kind of stuff. There's a plan. Um, and I don't begrudge people who, who get there on their own. I think we need to do that work on ourselves. Right, right. That short circuits would actually happens when people get through those things like that right because they've they're they're immersed in the trauma or the loss and they that making meaning is part of the healing right like it's that's you can't short circuit that exactly exactly that you're you're doing work on behalf of them it doesn't benefit them um but the fact is that i mean this reframing um which is another way of saying yes and is is um i mean some of the most beautiful examples of faith I have seen, whether the people would consider themselves faithful people or not, are are people who have been able to find that yes and. I mean, like you say with Krauthammer saying, you know, I still want, I'm going to make meaning of this time and and I'm going to choose to live abundantly as much as I can, given the constraints in which I find myself medically or physically. And I, I tell a story in the book of, of a friend of mine while I was writing the book who's, um, whose son was dying of a, a drug overdose. And uh, she, they were in the process of waiting. Um, they were going to harvest, uh, re- recover some of his organs so that they could be donated to people who could um, have a chance to live a full life as a result. <clears throat> and no one would want this friend of mine to experience the death of her son. But that to me is, is, is what yes and is about. She, there was no changing this terrible, um, horrible outcome. And yet there is um, a, a bit of redemption in it. And, and to me, that reframing is, is very powerful. When it happens, you just feel like you're, you're just uh, in holy ground um, walking along with people. And, and as a pastor, I've had that experience of walking with people in that kind of process and all I can do is just bask at the beauty of them finding their own yes and and walking with them as they do it. When you tell people that you're you're involved in improv, are, is there like pressure? Are they like, okay, be funny? Or like, okay, you must be really entertaining. Like, all right, <laughs> right let's go. Right. Do it now. Go. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, yeah a little bit. Um, I do try to, uh, as quickly as possible, uh, share with people what my interest in it is, which really is that this is about finding a way of being in the world when things don't go according to plan. Um, and I mean, I do improvise on stage and um, it's, it's fun to get a laugh. It's fun to have people, it's fun to inhabit a character and just go, where on earth did that come from? Uh, but it, but for me, that is all just bonus. Really what it's about is, what I learn about myself, what I'm help, able to help other people learn about themselves by c- taking them through uh, processes of improv and playing games together. Um, and years ago, I I learned from a biblical storyteller. Um, he was talking about the word perform. 
And he said, sometimes people dismiss biblical storytelling as performance, and you should read the scripture and kind of, you know, look at that as text and don't bring anything showy to it. But he said, you know, the the word performance literally means to form to completion, to to form fully. And isn't that what we're trying to do in our lives? We're trying to form our lives fully as, as embodied people um, to be who we're created to be. And so improv is one tool to do that, but I think it's um, a powerful one and one that has really resonated with me over the years. Yeah, I was struck by something you said earlier about it's not if you try to be funny, it's not going to be funny. As opposed to, like, you know, I heard Jerry Seinfeld interview, I think it was with Howard Stern, say that, you know, he thinks the hardest thing in, in, in show business is writing stand-up material because if it's not absolutely brilliant on the front end, it's useless. And then you still have to be able to deliver it, but like, but it's not, but what would help you in stand-up comedy then would kill you in improv because mm. it seems right. It, would it be that it would take away the vulnerability of it that, mm. that you, that you need to, by trying to be funny, you close yourself off to, to saying yes and right. Like right. you don't have an open hand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. I mean, and I think, um, I also think that I've, I don't, I haven't done stand up, although I have a lot of friends who improvise who also do dabble in stand up. but hearing from comedians and how they do their work, they, it is a very improvisational process. They kind of don't, they're, they're trying things out, they're workshopping material. And, and I, so I think even with that, modality there is a little bit of I mean there's just an and a great example because he's so observational and what's funny is when he names something that you have experienced in your own life and maybe brings a twist to it that you hadn't thought of but it's very relatable there are other comics who are very uh, unrelatable they sort of say things and you're like I it's so absurd and outside your experience that it's funny but a lot of comedy is based in that identification and, and relatability kind of thing yeah I know one level right I mean I've heard Jerry Seinfeld say like, funny is funny even if it's like because I think Stern was saying are, are cab jokes funny in Kansas or but at a certain level right once you get particular enough you get universal Yes. Right. And so like anybody can find anything funny or, you know, if, if it touches the deep stuff of the human condition, which which it sounds like improv vulnerability, that's the deepest stuff of the human condition. Right. Like because it's what we all want to be vulnerable. And yet it's the hardest thing to do. Right. I mean, we'd like it without the risk sometimes, but it, it always comes with a risk. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that uh, I think that's well said. We what makes it invigorating and what makes it hard for some people to watch, I mean, I have, you know, people I talk to about this stuff and they're like, oh, I just can't even, I just can't even watch improv. It just feels just almost too, it, it's like a sensory experience that's almost too much because you are, you realize you're watching people invent something and they're just as surprised as you are. And to me, that's the challenge and the beauty of it is that you're, you're all on the same side of the equation. We're all going As opposed to, be to going to a, com together. a comedy show or, or a play, you generally don't find yourself, uh, you find yourself maybe like identifying with characters, but not the performer themselves. Like, oh my gosh, I wonder what their makeup feels like. Or, oh my gosh, I wonder how long it took them to write that joke. You usually lost it. Whereas in improv, it, you're probably more likely to think, oh my gosh, I don't know that I could come up with something that, you know, like it, 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 the, the actual medium is much more potentially anxiety provoking, I guess, because you could yeah. see yourself up there. Right. 
Yes, that's. I think that's true, and and it's ironic because you know one of the things I I tell people is you know when I work with groups or you know at a retreat setting, you know people are like, oh I don't do improv, I I could I could never do that, and I I have people I often will ask groups, tell me about a time when things didn't go according to plan, and what did you do? And everybody has a story, so everyone is an improviser and and some people are more natural at it and some people have a harder time with it but we all do it and we just don't think about it in those terms and so my hope is that the book helps people do it better and more intentionally and faithfully and maybe with a bit of playfulness as well it's a great book and i honestly as i was reading it i thought maybe i'll take an improv class so like it was right. as I, was, I was actually mission accomplished <laughs> I, I don't know that i will or not yet yeah. but I, I seriously considered it as i was yeah. reading because it's it's a great read in in a world i mean you make some connections to a world that most people have a limited experience with right and it's it's great and it's, I, i'd recommend it to anybody who just wants to learn about the improvis- improvisational nature of the life we are in whether we like it or not Thank you. Well, I and, I and I do say to people, my my goal is actually not to get people in improv class, but um, if that's a side if that's a side product, I think it's it's a friend of mine said it's the most fun you'll ever have in therapy <laughs> <laughs> because you learn so much about yourself, what pushes your buttons, and what you do when you're uncomfortable, and how you work through that. And for people who have the courage and the the kind of playfulness to to confront those questions, you really can learn a lot and just have a lot of fun too. Well, thanks again for writing the book and for taking some time to talk about it with me. Enjoyed it very much. Keep keep in touch and let me know how those improv classes go. <laughs> I absolutely will. Thanks again. <laughs> All right, great. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Marianne for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, God Improv and the Art of Living. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.